Hey, Risto here with uh, George Mason University. Welcome back to another episode of Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education. Uh, today, we have Brian Culp with us uh, from Kennesaw State University. Um, Dr. Culp uh, wrote a paper called Illegitimate Bodies in Legitimate Times, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Movement. And this was published in Quest. And I uh, want to just acknowledge that this paper was developed from an award and lecture that uh, uh, you received at the Nakahee Conference in 2017 called the Delphine Hanna Commemorative Lecture. So congratulations on that accomplishment. Still, thank you very much for that. And I am glad to be part of the great work that you're doing with this podcast. Awesome. Happy to have you on. Um, now, I've read a couple of these Delphine Hanna lectures. Can you explain who Delphine Hanna was and how you chose to kind of approach this paper? Certainly. Um, Dr. Delphine Hanna is one of the central founders of modern American physical education. Um, she's a graduate of Brockport Normal School. Um, we now know Brockport Normal School as SUNY Brockport. Um, after she spent some time teaching in New York, Kansas, and Ottawa, Canada, she attended a Sergeant Normal School. She obtained her doctorate worked at Oberlin College in Ohio, and in fact, is she was awarded the first um, professorship, the women professorship of physical education. She's also a pioneer in developing physical education programs for college women, and one thing that does not get talked about a lot in our history text in physical education is that she was a mentor to numerous physical educators who helped shape the field in the first half of the 20th century. So individuals such as Luther Gulick, um, Thomas Wood, Jay Nash, and Jesse Farron. The um, answer was, how was I approached about this paper? Well, Ann Boyce at a conference um, basically accosted me in a hallway after uh, <laughs> another presentation that I had done. She had asked me to give the Hannah lecture um, for Nakahee. Um, at the time, I was um, just coming off of finishing a Fulbright Fellowship, which I talk a little bit about in this particular paper, but I um, did that fellowship in Montreal, Canada. Um, the research was on justice and physical activity infrastructure. So my thought process in attacking this particular lecture was to begin with an experience that most of us encounter on a semi-daily basis, but we either take it for granted or avoid it, which is riding public transportation. Um, anyone who's ever been to Montreal, Canada, will know that you can get around a lot by using the metro train. For me, I took the metro train every day from the primarily French-speaking community I lived in, which was Verdun, to the Anglophone community I worked with near Concordia University. Um, I also, because I'm, I'm real big into people watching, you know, as I do a lot of qualitative work, um, it kind of spurred for me a deeper understanding of insider and outside dynamics, which is some things that I've done some work on before. Um, commonality, social, cultural, and economic characteristics of people who are boarding the metro on different stops, um, looking at their movement experiences, thinking about how their experience were framed by institutions. Um, for some of us who've ever been to museums before, if you can imagine sitting down in a place where there's a moving room of art every five minutes, that was sort of the one of the bigger things that I thought about when putting together this paper. Yeah, and I really related uh, right away with that intro because I, I went to school at a um, teacher's college at Columbia University and I rode the one train up to 
um, to school. And, you know, I, I taught just north of there, too, in central Harlem for four years. Mm-hmm. And it was like a mass exodus of a certain type of person or a certain, you know, person at that 116th stop, which was one of the last stops before you entered Harlem. And it was definitely different. When I lived in the Bronx, it was the same thing. As soon as you left Manhattan or came into Manhattan, there was a definite change and you could you could see it was, you know, the time of day or, you know, train stops. And I think the, the every five minute kind of exhibit is, is, is a, is a good example because it was so drastically different depending on just where, where the bus, uh, bus stop or the Metro stop was. Mm-hmm. Um, so you opened the article by discussing the, the deep rooted history of immigration in the U S so can you share with the listeners a little bit about that history? Yes, and I like how you worded the question because it, it to, to apologize to some other historians here, the history I'm going to give here is very truncated, which is not a whole lot, but enough for what we need here today. So the first thing to recognize is that immigration is complex in large part because the United States itself is what we call a settler colonial society. So in other words, the settler colonial society is one that seeks to replace the original population of the colonized land. So in the United States, indigenous people, um, and more specifically, Native Americans. So that society looks to replace that indigenous group with a new society of people. Um, The other aspect about the United States to sort of understand is that that society, this society has been supported by some sort of imperial authority or set of actors who organize on behalf of a perceived authority. And it, and it sounds really conspiracy theorist when we think about it, but when you go back and look at history, we can use examples of Manifest Destiny, for instance. So we recognize that Manifest Destiny is one example of the beliefs by colonists that they were destined by God or gods to govern North America. Um, settler colonialism can also occur during via violence, as we've seen throughout the course of history, through legal maneuverings, um, in the case of Native Americans, broken treaties, and land removal. Um, these concepts, when we look at them in standard history textbooks, are not really discussed in a robust fashion. Um, over the past few years, we've seen some other things that I, I kind of mentioned. I put in the category recently the theater of the absurd. Um, we've, at least I've been on, on Twitter, which is probably a bad thing to do, is looking at clips of social media of people, the vast majority of them tend to be white, telling non-whites to go back to their country, which to me is very ironic when you see the descendants of immigrants telling others to come into the country to go back. Um, there's a, it's, a, it's a really big piece there that I think um, is lost among some of the discussions I think we're having on these topics. So... Up until about 1880, immigration in the United States was seen as positive, um, largely because immigrants had something to bring to the table and that what they brought to the table was creating infrastructures for cities and trade. Around 1882, you would start seeing the influence of the United States government and started being more prescriptive in terms of immigration. And, and, and in particular, excuse me, about things related to ethnic origin. So we start seeing in 1882 the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Immigration Act of 1882. 
what you would start witnessing in the years after those particular acts were risks between what were considered old immigrant groups and new immigrant groups. We start seeing literacy tests. We started seeing citizenship tests. We started seeing things such as quota systems. Um, uh, numerous scholars over the past year, few years have talked about how Western world countries like the United States modeled these practices from Greek culture to distinguish between who was considered a legitimate citizen and who was not considered a legitimate system. So to sort of wrap up that, that really, really brief example, that brief discussion, so three points. First of all, colonizers creating rules in a land that they had no rights to, to the creation of a new civilization with the use of immigrants and we would see later slave labor. And three, deciding upon which immigrants will be deemed acceptable. And to reiterate, this did not happen in just the United States. There's a history of this and across the world. And in thinking about that, that kind of um, got me thinking about this idea of illegitimacy that we talk about and that I discuss a little bit later in the paper. Yeah, and it's interesting to now have this immigration debate going on in the nation and uh, having it, you know, I, I'm an immigrant to this community and I'm a, I'm, I'm a first generation immigrant. I came here in middle school and I fit this uh, description of the immigrant that kind of blends in. The people don't worry about me because I immigrated from Finland. And, you know, people openly discuss immigration in front of me, whether it's friends or family members and they talk about all these things and they never really think to consider oh what does Risto think about this he's he's an immigrant and that I think that you know going into this next question I I just wanted to put that out there because I think it is a really interesting position from me as being a white European of you know Nordic heritage being in this and nobody around me really considers me an immigrant in my in my experience so Mm -hmm. you know in this conversation you discuss this dual privilege of euro-americans in society so you mentioned nationality-based identity as transformable and a racial identity that's unchangeable can you kind of discuss a little bit and explain to the listeners what you meant by that sure um i was reading some work by dr sulkin yang who uh, I cite a few times in this particular paper. Um, She is currently at Adelphi University and has a brilliant book out on biopolitics and race and immigration. Um, Essentially, one of the things that she's discussed in terms of bringing in uh, um, information from uh, some other scholars that have done some work in this particular area is that American has had, America, excuse me, has had a history of immigrant groups arriving in the country and essentially being discriminated against. These groups would come to the country with a national identity that they could tie back to their home countries and was expressed in their communities. But what would happen over time is that the hierarchy wasn't just about where you came from. It became attached to race, ethnicity, and also skin color. So what we would start happening back to 1882, we start seeing whiteness and depictions of whiteness being prioritized in society which would turn into these really interesting pecking orders among immigrant groups. So immigrant groups who are from Southern, Eastern, and Central Europe from around 1886 to 1925 
were in a racial pecking order before uh, below, excuse me, whites from England, the Netherlands, Ireland, Germany, and Scandinavian countries, but they were above people of color who were at the bottom of the order. So you would have, again, England, Netherlands, et cetera, at the top, Southern, Eastern, Central Europe in the middle, people of color at the bottom, when really depending on where they landed geographically. Um, as a result of that, and as a result of some actions and policies by the United States government, is that white has become the assumed default. So this dual privilege is essentially discussing the fact that you can be European because um, anyone who has European descent can trace their heritage, and you can also be American because American is portrayed as white. Um, if you want to see how this is prevalent in terms of now, if you do a Google search or whatever search engine that you decide to use on immigration, it's going to show you some very interesting things about how immigrants are portrayed. If you do a search for illegal immigrations, you're going to see images that are a little bit browner. If you even go a little bit further in search, you're going to see some historical cartoons of immigration the, even in the cartoons of immigration, the faces that you see are not, um, they're not white. It's not the standard, so to speak. And it yeah, is and pretty I, much, yeah. I did this Google search before we got on, and the uh -huh. only white face that I saw in illegal immigration was this guy, President Trump. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting that, you know, when you do actually do that, and in that order, when you look at immigration, then illegal immigration, then historical cartoons, you do actually see a, uh, a change, uh, which is really interesting. So um, you, you talk in this paper about three, uh, three ideas, state racism, neoliberalism, and biopower. Uh, can you describe or can you define these terms so everyone's on the same page going forward? Sure. So Foucault who um, there are more than a few people in our profession that have been influenced or have talked about Michel Foucault um, in a lot of different incarnations, discussed state racism. Um, I started looking at Society Must Be Defended as one of the first works, and this was probably 10 years ago because I knew nothing about Foucault. I really did not have a, a, a real robust discussion of Foucault when I was in my doctoral studies. So in 1976, Foucault, in a series of lectures, started discussing that his idea of state racism. And his argument was that racism wasn't just tied to, is tied to power, not just biological characteristics. Um, so first of all, state racism, in terms of a general definition, involves a nod to conformity. And it makes these overtures to, quote unquote, protect the state. So any group that threatens the health of the nation should be restricted. Um, another term by Foucault was biopower. Then he talks specifically about the practice of modern nations to control populations and subjugate bodies due through what we have in this country in terms of disciplinary institutions. So schools, um, prisons, hospitals, social practices, it's literally having power over people's bodies and bodies. Um, neoliberalism has a multiple definitions that you will find that are contested. The definition that I use is the idea that market forces dictate every facet of society, including economic and social life. So in other words, if it's not profitable, it's not seen as very important. Right. So can you explain why uh, these terms are important in the context of the paper? Sure. So 
the three, and I mentioned a couple things in sort of the historical notes I have like at the bottom of a few of the pages, well, excuse me, at the end, um, these things still occur in our society. So for example, in recent years, we have had and still have, as we see the Flint water crisis and other water resource issues that happen primarily in brown or lower, uh, brown or what people would consider lower income communities. And again, that word is a different contested word for another day. Um, we've had, as we've expressed before, calls of the building of border walls to protect us from Mexico and Central America. Interestingly or not, there's no calls to build a wall to protect us from Canada. Um, we've talked about there's cityhood movements, which I'm uniquely familiar with in Georgia, and as essentially groups that attempt to annex themselves from others that they seem undesirable. And we're still trying to tell women in 2019 what to do with their bodies. So hey, can you can you yeah. explain uh, what cityhood movements are? Sure. So cityhood movements is, for instance, you could be living in the same county in a state. You have certain people in that county who have more resources or a higher economic status. And essentially what a cityhood movement tries to do is that they try to make a separate city in that county using the same taxes that everybody else in the county has to pay. So, um, and I'll give you an example that people can look up. If you look up the city of Eagles Landing, Georgia, there is probably a six article, very well out discussion of this particular movement, these movements that have been happening in the state of Georgia, where people who live in gated communities that have all of the physical activity, physical education resources around them, basically want to move away from everybody else in the particular county, but yet use everyone's taxes to benefit just what they have annexed off. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a very interesting thing because, you know, here in Georgia, we're seeing it just, you know, we'll have people who live in golf club communities who want to separate themselves and take the best tracks, the best fields, the best of everything related to physical activity and leave everyone else outside the county with whatever they can come up with. But they still want to pay the same taxes. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's ridiculous. So, Yeah. Awesome. So um, you talk about the implications of all of this on three different areas, massification, attention to place, and then the perceptions of body movement. Can you uh, begin by talking about the idea of massification and particularly how you see it playing out in the physical education setting? Absolutely. Um, so one of my favorite books, and people who know me well know I talk about this book, pretty incessantly, is Future Shock by Alvin and Heidi Toffler. Um, both of them have passed away in the past few years. And essentially, that book was written, I think, about 1972. And essentially, Toffler, the Tofflers both talk about the fact that we're getting so many things that are being introduced to our society that human beings can't keep up with them. So he started talking about, like, in some respects the massification about how we have so many things is actually taking people to a point where they are um for lack of a better word having nervous breakdowns because they can't keep up with this and he predicted in 1972 that this was going to happen with technology so in looking at some of the work that he had done and some of his predictions i was looking at massification in terms of higher education first 
because in higher education, we see this. We have a focus on in higher education of a lot of universities putting people in seats, but not necessarily worrying about their individuality. My position here is that this is moving to what we would consider other levels of schooling, like primary levels of schooling as well. So the individual learner doesn't really matter anymore. We worry more about high stakes testings. We have minimized creativity and we focus on management. Um, I also kind of want to, want to discuss and go a little bit further. What we're seeing now, in my opinion, is that things such as video games and social media are taking the place of the creativity and critical thinking, good or bad, that we are supposed to have in schools. We're finding that youth are finding these particular mediums to be something that they can customize. They can choose multiple adventures. They can have the promise of a community. Now, again, the idea of community is something that's debatable, depending on what you think people get out of these video games. Um, we now see seniors are getting involved in these things as well. So from a physical education perspective, social components used to matter. They still do matter. I contend that part of our issue that we're having it's not necessarily whether to figure out what we're going to do in classes. It's just having the time to actually do it. And the time that we should have to do it is being taken by these focus on high stakes testing and this idea that we have to mass produce a student that doesn't have any agency. And I guess there's, there's a big push for social emotional learning. There's a big push for technology. There's a big push for classroom management, restorative practice, and that in itself okay. is you know, so overwhelming for teachers mm -hmm. to be able to do one of those things properly. And they try to probably do many of them and don't do all of them very well. So I guess that it seems to me like a little bit of a, uh, a cycle that kind yes. of builds and builds and builds and builds. So, um, what about the idea of place? Yeah. So in the article, in the paper, I talk a little bit about um, parks and how important that they are. But just to give you a sort of shorter version of that, people who follow me on Twitter in particular know that I don't talk a lot on Twitter, but when I do, it's, it's pretty intense. So this past February during Black History Month, there was a slave run activity that occurred in Virginia during a physical education class. And the idea of their place, I think, is very important because in that particular, what kind of incensed me so much about that particular environment was the fact that in this era where we're talking about measuring everything and creating safer schools, we sometimes forget that violence is not about just preventing fights or preventing weapons in a school, but violence is psychological. In my opinion, the slave run activity was a dehumanizing piece for students. Um, as I continue can, to sort of, yeah, go for it. Can you explain, so, so this was literally like 30 minutes away from where we live in Virginia. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, it came up and all of us were like, oh no, like, yeah. I can't believe this crazy, right? Can you just explain what that was? Because I think, I think, you know, half of our listenership is global, right? They're yeah. out of the US. So I think that they might not understand if you just say slave run activity, like, Sure. Just explain it because it's it's one of the most reprehensible things I've heard a PE teacher do. Absolutely. So to make a long story as short as I can possibly make it and give it some importance here, essentially you had a physical education teacher that decided that for a black history lesson, 
that they would teach about slavery in a way that would try to get students physically active. Um, so they divided the class into slaves and plantation owners. And their reason for doing this was that they wanted to teach about black history, but they also thought that they would give autonomy to students by having them pick which one they wanted to be. So they could either be the slave or they could be like the slave owner. And essentially they set up a mini obstacle course and you had students running and trying to, from what I understand, trying to tag each other or get to certain places. Um, what ended up happening is that obviously a few of the students had that discussion with their parents and then the parents ended up having um, some phone calls done to administration and principal's office. So I don't know. Is that a good enough description of it? Yeah, and I, I think yeah. that's an accurate description. And I think that, you know, that was the first time I think the principal heard about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which so what, what would you say to because I know that you were going to talk about this that the yeah. idea was well-intended quote. Yeah, the, the comments that I read, and again, another reason why I should probably stay off social media from time to time, is that you read these comments from people that say, this was a well-intended idea that got out of hand. And for me, I thought that, like you, it was reprehensible, but it was ridiculous because if it was a good idea, somebody would have asked first, they would have, you know, usually we have people in our lives that when we throw an idea out as teachers, we ask, was this a good idea or a bad idea? First of all, I would think that even before someone's even conceptualizing this as a lesson, they would have been taught that this is not the way you set up a lesson if you wanted to do any, any teaching of any historical events. Second of all, they never checked this off with somebody else that they trusted to tell them that this was a really bad idea. This also speaks to something that I talk about all the time, which is the need to make sure that in peak programs, we teach about um, cultural response, pedagogy, diversity, um, social justice, so on and so forth, so that this thought is not even a part of the process. But in terms of the place piece of this, if we think about those particular students who, uh, several of whom um, we found out a little bit later were African-American, their idea of place has now, when we think of, when they think about physical education, their idea of place has been tied to a, an action that is reprehensible in American history, and that has continued to be passed down as something that is just not transformational as, as, at all. Um, so we have potentially created permanent scars for students in a situation in physical education where that should never happen. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears here, what sure. about the perceptions of uh, body movement? Yeah. Um, we're in a society that often talks about numerous, um, well, we have, excuse me, numerous underrepresented populations really regulated to second class status that are told that, you know, your body essentially doesn't matter. I mean, if they're the state, quote unquote, whether that is a school, whether that is the state that they live in, whether that is the country, unfortunately, where we are right now, their body is pretty much told that it doesn't matter like someone else's does. So body movement to me is a very fascinating thing I, I like to look at and talk about. I mean, 
just in, if you take an elementary school by itself, the concept of general and personal space is something that we sort of gloss over a lot of times, but really don't think about it. So one of the things to sort of think about here in terms of the perception of body movement as a paper was sort of wondering whether we need to talk more about those things, but also not just space invasion, but space uninvasion and talking about those throughout physical education curriculum since we see so many students. Um, the other piece of it is this perception of body movements and thinking about this question of whose body is of most worth. Um, that was one of the questions that I touched on on the lecture and I gave some different examples related to sport. One recent example and one that I, I go back and forth with in terms of whether I have contention about this or whether I think this is something that needs to be changed. Um, many of us in the United States uh, who are part of PEAT programs are now doing an assessment for physical education for physical education teachers called the EdTPA. It is EdTPA is basically an assessment to determine teacher effectiveness. Um, the National Association for Multicultural Education has a position statement that talks about the EdTPA in terms of taking a learning environment that is supposed to be very intimate between the students and teachers, and we have turned this environment into something that is very, uh, for lack of a better word, something that is just under surveillance and right. not democratic. I mean, we're basically bringing in cameras to film our teachers teach at the expense of the teaching and learning environment and I think the last point about that is that in a perfect world, we would like to see the changes with our student teachers as a result of them working in authentic environments. But the issue that the um, name discusses is that does it really create a diverse, uh, excuse me, does it really create a democratic environment for all students when you have student teacher candidates who may care only about the fact that they need to pass this assessment and not on the teaching and learning environment and what they get from students. Yeah, I think you're spot on on there. Um, so in the, in the paper, you talk about the capabilities approach and you put that forth as kind of a framework that's worthy of more investigation uh, when it comes to physical activity. Can you explain the approach that you outlined? Sure, so the capabilities approach has three basic pieces here, it's functionings, so it's the states and activities of a person's being, capabilities or the combinations that are feasible for a person to achieve, and then agency, which we've talked about before, referring to some type of agent who acts and brings about change in that environment. Um, this came from Dr. Martha Newsbaum and Amartya Sen, um, and talking about the concepts of substantial freedoms and capabilities, essentially when we look at the capabilities approach, it's a theoretical one that talks about the how to affirm equity and dignity of all human beings. It also seeks to address questions of justice and human development. Uh, I started looking at this a few years ago because I started getting frustrated with attending in-services and reading articles that only focused on the deficit approach to students and that deficit approach would primarily be focused on immigrant student groups and urban youth. So in terms of when you when we go back and think about the capabilities approach next to the title and the themes of this particular paper, in the United States, we say that we want life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But 
can we really promote that if we're not willing to model it, if we're, we're not willing to ensure that that happens in terms of a physical education discipline toward a better society? Right. So how do you see the approach fitting in the, in the PE setting or physical activity and where do you think that we should go from, from here? I think number one, I think the first thing is we need to just go beyond outcome-based understanding of general look at an outcome to the point out massification and say, okay, we got this outcome, so therefore these students can do these things, whatever those things are determined, depending on how we look at it. We don't really ask the question of what rights do our youth have? Okay, we have a lot of people who can um, express those particular things to youth, but the youth a lot of times don't get opportunities to have that discussion about what they think is important and how they participate from a democratic standpoint. Um, we currently see, as you alluded to earlier in the podcast, um, there are more than a few work uh, scholars doing work on restorative justice in our field now. Um, most recently, I read a presentation by Drs. Lynch and Walden Facet on how this can be accomplished at the elementary level. A few months ago at a PHE Canada conference, I sat in with one of my good friends who you've had on the podcast, Dr. Michael Hempel, who've talked about restorative practice and awareness circles. And he discusses the fact that awareness circles work, um, but the adults and teachers have to be in on it as well. It can't just be just the students. And then talking about this aspect that I discussed earlier about time. So if we want to actually get to where we think we need to go, it can't just be outcome-based. It has to be what are our students bring to us so that we can help them fulfill their, their dreams. Yeah, and I, Michael has, Dr. Hempel has really, you know, helped me out in diving into restorative practice. We have a project that we just finished up in, uh, in June on this. And so I'm digging into this uh, work. And I think one of the things also is it can't just be uh, a restorative circle always about you got in a fight, you did something bad, let's fix this. Or you, you broke classroom rules, let's fix it. To actually, and I think sometimes when you use restorative practice, if it's done incorrectly, it does actually take a deficit approach. You know, you're always putting mm-hmm. out fires and you're you're fixing it instead of starting the semester off with these awareness circles and starting conversations about building, you know, camaraderie through them, not as so we're going to sit in the circle so you all don't fight for the rest of the semester. Right. That's so a great point. I think there's great point. And there's there's so much that's left to be done in physical education mm-hmm. with restorative practice. And I, and I think I, are you talking about the presentation at ICEP with, uh, uh, Cherie Lynch and Walton Fissette? Is that the same one that you saw? Yep. That would be the one that would be the one. Yeah. So I, I love that too. That was yep. really, really, uh, great. So is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, just a couple things, and then we'll, we'll end up here. I mean, I always tell people there's some other aspects that are in the paper. Um, one of the things that discusses a little bit earlier is uh, sort of the histories of eugenics in physical education, which I like to discuss with my classes. I teach a foundations class every fall, and that's one of the things we talk about in terms of looking at older literature in physical education and how stereotypes get created 
um, and for everybody, not just one particular group of people. And then the last thing I think I want to sort of add is a plug for an upcoming conference. I mean, as I mentioned at the outset, NACAHES, National Association for Kinesiology and Higher Education, this upcoming January 2020, you can go to the website, um, NACAHES.org. It's in Palm Springs, California, and we're going to to the theme, sorry, excuse me, is Leading Beyond the Campus Driving Changes Experts. Dr. Hal Lawson, which many of the community is very familiar with, will be our keynote speaker. And um, as part of that, we've been making a lot of attempts to internationalize our organization. And if you don't want to attend this next one, please um, try to find some time in your schedule in the next few years to meet us there at one of our future conferences. And of course, continue to support Quest and International Journal of Kinesiology and Higher Education. Awesome. And I will give a plug for Palm Springs in January. It is way better than anything up north during the month of January <laughs> and super close to Joshua Tree for those of you that are looking to get a uh, get a couple hikes in. It's a beautiful area to be in. Great conference. Uh, thanks for the plug. Um, and I know you have a New Orleans one and Phoenix. So that conference kind of goes coast to coast most of the time. Is that correct? That's correct. We try to... Um... uh, It has turned into a warm weather type of experience, and it is always in January. Um, We have tried to attempt to change that several times, but we have gotten a lot of great pushback to not do that. But, yeah, we tend to spread around the country. Awesome. And so where can people find your Twitter handle or any other uh, information or website that you got? Yeah, I would probably tell you, you can find... The most stuff about me, I have a website that I've had for 11 years, cultureinmotion.com. You can find me there. That is also my Twitter hashtag. And, uh, yeah, I essentially use that as a place where I compile a lot of work, some ideas related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and social justice. Um, now my work has sort of expanded out to some different things that I've done. It's always still connected to P, but I, I like looking at different aspects of movement as well and some things most recently related to public health. So, yeah, I mean, you should be able to find me there. Awesome. And we'll link to your Twitter and the, and the website there. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I want to reiterate, I think you're doing some great work with these podcasts, and I hope that you continue this. We will. Second year strong. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Mm